Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, We, of course, have all the best guests on the Chris Voss Show. Com. And today's going to be a dual podcast show. We're going to have the Chris Voss Show podcast, of course, hosting the show. And it will also be found on our book author podcast. So you can go to bookauthorpodcast.com and you can see that. You can decide which uh, podcast you want to subscribe to at any times. And of course, you can go to the Chris Voss Podcast Network.com and subscribe to all the different shows. I think there's six or seven of them over there. But uh, if you want to listen to 100% book author interviews, you can do that on the uh, bookauthorpodcast.com or you can uh, or you can just see everything we have on the com podcast as well. Uh, we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. If you're into gaming, you can also go to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash Chris Voss. We're giving away some really cool uh, game codes and different things over there, so you can see some of that stuff as well. Uh, today's guest is Chris Clues. Oh, my gosh. He's a marketing executive speaker and an author of the book, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace. It's the first in a series that finds the lessons from the 1980s movies for the workplace today and he even has a second one due late in the spring that he's coming out with another book he's uh, along with being an author he's a speaker frequent business and 80s podcast guest chris is currently the head of marketing for dhl resilience 360 and he resides in deerfield beach florida we won't hold the florida against him welcome to the show how you doing chris I'm doing great, Chris. I kid all my Florida friends. You guys have the, I don't know what is, what's going on down there, man, but there's something in you guys' water. We have Florida man down here. That's what they always say. Florida man's man's in the news all the time. Oh, yeah. You you guys just had a mayor get arrested down there for uh, being a doctor in his own house or something because they pulled his license and they just did a big raid on him. Yeah. And then another one just uh, a couple weeks ago for licking people's faces or something. I don't know. Around here, that's what I call Wednesdays. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about you. Let's get to know uh, Chris a little bit better. I mean, you've done a few things. You've been a stand-up comic. I understand your uh, past history. Uh, yeah, I do uh, stand-up comedy for fun uh, here and there. I just uh, go up on stages once in a while. And the first time I did it, I actually decided just to go straight to the improv for an open mic. So typically, when I go do something, I go it's hard. I go all in. I go hard, and um, I don't. Go gradual. So something in your first marriage. Uh, the uh, <laughs> so you did the improv, the comedy improv on uh, Sunset Boulevard there. I think it's uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, West Palm Beach, Florida. They have them all over the place. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one of my friends uh, used to babysit. Uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the kid from the um, not from the improv, but from the comedy store. That's what I'm thinking of. But uh, yeah, that's that's it's quite the it's quite challenging to do improv. I would imagine. Well, I mean, I was lucky. I did a, I do open mics where you can prepare your material for about yeah. five minutes, and then you get up there and do your thing. And it's um, it's I, I'll tell you, the first time you do it, it's pretty terrifying. Try yeah. looking out over this crowd and knowing that you don't know ninety five percent of the people have no idea who you are, and you have to try to make them laugh at your jokes. And uh, it's you can feel your heart coming through your chest. You're pretty sure everybody else can see it too. So yeah, yeah. I remember one time I did. I was uh, speaking. Uh, uh, at an event uh, back east somewhere, and they had like uh, they had uh, 
the front row, they didn't tell me, but the whole front row, the speaking folks were, were, were a group of people who were deaf. And, uh, and I was telling jokes and like most of the room was laughing, but the front row, I couldn't get the laugh. And it really started driving me crazy. And I started losing it in my speech. I'm like, why? And they're just looking at me like, who's this fucking guy? And uh, it just threw my whole speech off because I, I didn't know those guys were like the deaf crew up front. And I'm like, I'm like telling them jokes. I'm trying to, you know, interact with them a little bit. And I'm just, you know, dying on stage with, with this front row thing. And, you know, it becomes one of those things where as a comedian, you just start, you know, you focus in on the guy you, who's not laughing because you're like, what do I got to do to get this guy to laugh? And, uh, yeah, I, I, I came off stage just ready to quit ever speaking again. And I'm like, what the fuck is with the front row? And they're just like, yeah, they're all deaf. They can't hear you, which is probably good anyway. So I'm not that funny. I, I encourage anybody who, if you have a fear of speaking, if you have a fear of getting up in front of people, putting together five minutes of comedy material, go up on an improv stage or go up on a stage at any comedy, your local comedy club, do that five minutes. And I can assure you, you will never have a problem get in front of anybody at work ever again for meetings, presentations. It's the best thing. You can. And when you do, when you, if you do a comedy uh, stand-up tryout in LA, you're literally there. I think you pay like 15 bucks for five minutes or something. And you probably have to buy some drinks or something too, but everybody in the room is there doing the same thing you are trying to try out. So they don't, they don't even want you to succeed. They're just not even going to laugh. They're just like, fuck this guy. <laughs> you know, you're basically sitting in a room trying to make a bunch of people that just want to see you fail and that also paid 15 bucks for five minutes. They're just like, get the fuck off the stage. <laughs> so it, it's a brutal business, writing jokes and, and being they're trying to be funny or being funny. And I think some people, they get out and they, they, they you, you learn you're not as funny as you, as you do. But, yeah, it's definitely a trial by fire when it comes down to it, especially improv. So you did a little bit of that. You grew up, of course, in the 80s, which is where you wrote this book out of the experience and knowledge, I guess, that you gained from uh, getting, going through one of the greatest periods of music and pop culture probably yeah. ever. <laughs> I'm I, I clearly biased with my age, obviously. Um, and you're a huge sports fan. You've done some NCAA, NCAA basketball stuff, PGA stuff. Yeah, so, so I've been lucky enough to do some pretty cool sports sponsorships. Uh, NCAA basketball, Major League Baseball, PGA, and my favorite was the UFC. Uh, sponsored a bunch of UFC fighters um, about five or six years ago, uh, which was just pretty awesome. That was a that was a really uh, that was a lot of fun that experience. And um, so yeah. And you also did some. Uh, this is kind of interesting. That's in your bio. You did some uh, stint as a bellman at several hotels on the Disney property and did security for celebrities. Yeah. back in the day back in the they day good, uh, interesting disney celebrity uh inter uh celebrity stories anything uh, salacious uh, yeah that's, there's there's some um, there's some interesting you see some interesting things for sure yeah absolutely okay. things. but working at disney was pretty cool i mean it was a it's a great experience if you're in your 20s and you're out of college and you want to learn about true customer service um it's a great it's a great place to learn yeah. Did you ever get into any arguments with uh, Mickey Mouse or anything like that? You ever? You ever no, no? once, but that was it. Yeah. I, yeah. It'd be funny. I'd go to work at Disney, and then I'd find out that the guy who's uh, playing Mickey Mouse is like an asshole, and like he has a, some sort of beef with me that I don't know. 
what the beef would be. And then we just have to, you know, I'd just be like, hate, I'd hate Mickey Mouse after that and just ruin my whole childhood. That's probably the way. Yeah, I, I, was, I was lucky. I didn't have to be around those guys too much. So I think uh, the, the um, but, I, but I did, the experience was pretty cool, I will say. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, you got to wear a goddamn costume all day long in 70-degree uh, heat in California. Are you really that happy? I mean, I'd be drinking on the inside of the costume. That's what I'd be doing. I'd be like, I'd be like, uh, I'd be like, uh, uh, well, what's that Santa movie with what's his face? Uh, I'd be that guy with That's the costumes. Cool. I'd be fired from Disney like in five minutes. They'd just be like, hey man, this guy's gotta go. Plus, it'd be a really fat fucking Mickey Mouse, so that would probably be inappropriate in some way. <laughs> You'd be too tall, man. Trust me. It's like, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a. I'll tell you, it is a it's a pretty cool place to to kind of. I mean, I guess cut your teeth and. Uh, when I moved to Orlando, I actually just literally after college, I packed up my car and a couple hundred bucks and mm -hmm. drove. And it was 1993. So we had no cell phones. There was no way to communicate with anybody on the way down except stopping at a payphone. Wow. Yeah, I remember those days. South Carolina, I'm here, I'm there. And uh, ended up in Orlando and uh, was lucky enough to land a job at Disney to keep myself going because before that, I was literally eating pasta without the sauce. I could afford the pasta or the sauce, and the pasta was more filling. So, so I, I remember those days. You know, sometimes you'd you'd just eat the the uncooked top ramen just so you'd have some solid food for a change yeah. instead of yeah. just top ramen. <laughs> sprinkle, you sprinkle that seasoning package on there because it's like you know that seasoning right there. So let's get to your book. What eighties pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. So what the hell is this book about? Like what is what is going on with this? Uh, is it Ferris Bueller's day off where I just need to uh, call in sick for the day for the workplace? Yeah. Well, that's, that's one lesson actually. Uh, life balance. Let's talk about the book uh, that you can get this on Amazon, yeah. I imagine in a few different places. Um, and uh, uh, so you, you, you basically take the lessons from the eighties, different things from the pop culture and how, how we can apply it to the workplace. Yeah. So, yeah. So you can buy the book on Amazon and, uh, actually have a website as well. ChrisClues.com, C L E W S, uh, same on Facebook and LinkedIn. And then also on Twitter, I was actually lucky enough, surprisingly about eight months ago, I went for my Twitter handle and at eighties pop culture was available. So it's pretty easy. It ties right back to the book. Seriously, that was available. I didn't believe it. It was That's a sign. Funny. It was a sign. I think. So I have at '80s pop culture as my uh, Twitter handle. And yeah, the book's available on Amazon, and I'm actually about halfway through, close to halfway through the second book. Uh -huh. uh, and then that one's going to be have larger distribution. So. What's the, name of the second book? Do you have a name for it yet? Is it going to be the '90s pop culture? No, actually, I'm I'm going to take the I'm going to put my flag on top of the '80s mountain. And Are that's you? You're going down with the 80s. They're just yeah. going to ride that fucking train all the way. Good for you. And I've got um, the uh, – so, the, so there'll be what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. And the first one is mixtape number one, you know, mixtape number two, mixtape number three, uh, because we all used to make mixtapes in the 80s. So, um, And each, each one of them will take ten movies from the 80s and find the business lessons in them. That's awesome, man. I've seen I've seen the videos of you where you get up and you talk about uh, and you're speaking about uh, what you guys learned and lessons learned. Give us some examples of, of some of the lessons you used in your book. Yeah, excellent. So uh, I'll give you one right off the bat that I think is a really important one for today's workplace, and that's uh, from the Goonies. 
So if you remember the Goonies, they were just a ragtag bunch of kids. And uh, two, of the, two of the characters in particular really like stuck with me. And it was Chunk and Sloth. And um, both of them phenomenal characters. Actually, Chunk now is an entertainment lawyer out in L.A., and he's done fantastic. He's doing fantastic on that side of the business. Uh, Sloth was played by Ted Matuzak, who was an Oakland Raider back in the day. Oh, yeah. okay. And um, so they taught us about inclusion, and they taught us a really important lesson about inclusion in the workplace. If you remember back in the movie, Chunk was thrown down in the basement uh, by the Fratelli family, right? And Sloth was chained up down there. He was one of their brothers, but he was chained up because of the way he looked that he had this stone-shaped head and his ears that wiggled and eyes that were offset and missing some teeth. He was just, he was a strange looking guy. My and parents then, the same with me. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And you might like baby Ruth too, right? You didn't have to so, agree with me, but we'll get, you know. He, uh, he gets down there and of course, you know, uh, Sloth is uh, chained up and eventually when he gets unchained, he picks up Chunk and Chunk says, man, you smell like Fizz Ed. And so not only is Sloth awkward looking, but he smells like Fizz Ed. And Chunk looks past all of this. All he wants to do is be his friend. That's all he cares about. Wants to be his friend, bring him into the group, include him, the, the whole idea of inclusion, include him into the group. And in return, what did they get? They found out that Sloth's greatest asset was his loyalty. And at the end of the movie, he saves their lives. He puts himself in front of his family and saves their lives over his family and shows his loyalty to them. And so there's a really important lesson in there for the workplace. There is. Fuck family. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, I think some people do that in the workplace too, man. It's meant yeah. to. Well, that's true too. I mean, uh, I've had a few friends who have ignored their uh, family and ended up in messy divorces because they work too much. But yeah, um, you know, it's either that or you got to pay the bills, whatever. You can't make everyone happy. But uh, I, I've I've had personal relationships where uh, you know I've worked too much and and let them slide. Sometimes there were business relationships where where uh, where we focus so much on the business that the friendship fell away and then the partnership fell away in the business. So those, uh, I don't know, some different ways that, that happens. Well, no, it's a good, it's a good segue into uh, when you mentioned Ferris Bueller earlier, mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller taught us about work-life balance, but in, in a couple of interesting contexts, and I'll kind of set up the story about why I came up with that idea of Ferris Bueller and work-life balance. Uh, we're not talking about being at work at extended hours back in, this is going back probably 1998, 99, and I was working for an interactive ad agency. So you know I've been in digital marketing for a while. 1998, we were getting 25% click-through rates on our banners because people were just fascinated by, wait a minute, I click this and then I go to another website? This is incredible. <laughs> they didn't care about what the website was. They were just fascinated by this yeah. And um, I was working for a client at the agency. My mom had come down to see me. I hadn't seen her in a couple of years. I had moved to Florida and I was just busy doing things. and. She came down on a Friday. I was supposed to meet her at a restaurant at 8 o'clock. This is in the book. And um, I didn't get there until after 10 because I was working on a project for a client who, by the way, a year later, nothing really mattered anyway. The, the site was out of business. The company was out of business. And, you know, I missed this opportunity with my mom, and I left her at the restaurant for several Ooh. hours by herself. Well, you're going uh, to hell, man. One of the – greatest people you could ever meet. I mean, one of the, just a gentle soul and very patient. And so uh, thankful for me. But out of that, you know, I learned a valuable lesson about what's important. And um, Ferris teaches us that in a little bit of a different way. But what he does, he goes one step further. And what he teaches us is 
think about when you're in your workplace, your, your place of business, there's always, you always have a camera. There's always a camera and fry at your business. Somebody who's typically always unhappy. They're just, things aren't going well in their life. They, they tend to, to be negative, not in a way that, that pushes people away necessarily. I told you not to talk about me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Is that you? No, I'm just. Uh, it doesn't, that doesn't seem like you. So, um, so Cameron Fry, everybody has a Cameron Fry at work. And so Ferris taught us not only about work-life balance, but that it's important that sometimes, you know, you feel good about your life. Things are going well for you to make sure that if you take that day off, that you take your Cameron for your work. Because they need, you know, make, force them like he did, force them to come with you. Don't let yes. them sit there and say, you know, when Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. To come with you um, on that day off and and spend some time away. You know, my Tinder has that same sort of click through rate about twenty five percent. Mostly women going, "What the fuck is wrong with this guy?" They just they just want to see, you know, how messed up this dude is. And then they screenshot me and send me to all their friends on Facebook and go, "Can you believe this asshole's on fucking Tinder?" Um, So there's that. Your ghost rate around twenty five percent as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but there's no there's no follow click through. The the sales funnel ends there. That's yeah. pretty much what it is. Um, but uh, you know, whatever. At least I'm popular. So whatever that means, I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of cool things we can learn. I think I think a lot of people uh, that changed a lot of people's mindset. That movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off and gave people uh, kind of a perspective thing. Um, also, uh, you know, I mean, one of the one of the greatest. Uh, one of the greatest scenes in the movie is when they leap the car, when the car yeah. goes off and it plays the Imperial Star Wars music. That's, that's just a, such a great scene. <laughs> it goes off. I mean, the 80s had some of the best times, some of the best movies, some of the best TVs. I mean, it was a really great creative age. Um, and it was, and a lot of it came from, I think, the late 70s. And in, in a lot of creative studios, whether it was movies or music, uh, or anything else, uh, there, there still was this creative thing that was going on that wasn't quite the controlling part, the controlling part of corporate culture and uh, manipulation. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pay, the pay, uh, the, the payola sort yeah. of stuff that came around with Mariah Carey. Um, you know, back in those days, they would take uh, music labels would take bands and they would let them make the music they wanted for the most part. And so they would make this music, and sometimes it would be good, sometimes it would be not really great, and then they'd be like, well, you know, we'll give you three or four albums to work out that band thing and that music thing, you know, and then, you know, they progressively get better, and then all of a sudden some band that, you know, had a bunch of shitty albums would all of a sudden have that hit album that would hit in the 80s, and you're just like, all right, you know, those those four albums they did made, you know, everything better when it finally came out. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, I think it was the A and R men started showing up, and the corporate people started showing up, going, "Oh, we need to, we need to take this magic and try and control it," and started really killing the the creationism, the creative, the creationism, the creative juices of the 1980s. And then, you know, you got to the 90s, and and uh, I think went downhill after that. Um, the uh, <coughs> Nirvana, <coughs> excuse me, uh, grunge. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My millennials. I have some ideas about that, by the way, about the whole creative thing in the '80s and how. Yeah, that I'd love to hear your take on it because I just spewed out mine. I could be so, wrong. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I think there was a couple of things that happened in the '80s 
we were we were moving towards independence in terms of people, people being able to be as you know, Depeche Mode said, people are people, right? So people being able to be who they wanted to be. And it was the, the first time in the 80s where somebody could walk down the street with a purple mohawk. And sure, there were people that kind of looked twice, but a lot of people just walked right by him and said, you know, that's it. It's a purple mohawk, big deal. And that was the first time in the 80s that we experienced that, I think, that, that um, independence and creative spirit and everybody kind of starting to accept people for who they were. Yeah. And that drove a lot of the creative creativity. Right. Where in the seventies, everyone was just kind of like a freak and looked down upon because everyone lived in the sixties with that that IBM sort of model where everyone wears a black suit and a black tie and a black hat and shows up to work and no one has any color or personality and and yeah, uh, who was one of the big pop culture things that really changed uh, the look and feel of all that? Madonna and then uh, uh, Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper was huge at affecting uh, pop culture during that thing and really, you know, going color, uh, culture club, uh, was all about color and personality. Uh, I think the cure, um, I'm trying to think of some other bands, but yeah, it was, re it was really this great time of, of experimentation and, uh, trying new things. And, and, uh, you know, there were some people in the older crowd that are like, you know, fucking kids. Um, but for the most part, it was uh, it was just a great time. There's there's wonderful things that were happening. Sound was getting better. We we there was a lot of individualism that came out of that. You saw the launch of uh, the Walkman, the Sony Walkman. I remember being so proud of that. And for the first time, you were free of the radio, which you if you grew up in my era, you literally sat by the radio and you called the DJ and said, "Play my favorite song." <laughs> Sounds yeah. like a song that they issued nowadays. Um, but uh, Sally from John for yeah, I, I would I would call I would call the DJ like relentlessly like it's amazing they didn't have call blocking back then because they're like look we're not gonna play Steely Dan reel in the years yet that comes up every you know top of every hour just calm down buddy <laughs> and uh, but you had so much you had so much great stuff uh, uh, I think disco was just rounding out at that time you had. Uh, you know, uh, lots of great heavy metal music, Metallica. <laughs> um, uh, lots, of, I mean, just so much great music came out of there, uh, great movies. Uh, I mean, they're still making, you know, reruns of, of all the great movies of the 80s, Star Wars, you know. It's kind of like every, every great creative thing kind of came out of that era. Yeah, you know, I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. This idea that the 80s, that the decade of the 80s and the creative energy that there that was there and why. And so what's really interesting is I was doing research for the book. And one of the things that I do in each chapter, before I get into the movie and the workplace lessons that it taught us, I set up the time frame. So I say if, it, if a movie came out in June of 1983, for example, I went back and I looked at what the top 40 music was, what the movies at the box office were, the television. And I talked a little bit about that, the kind of taking back to that time, or if you weren't around in that time to kind of show you what it was like. And what I found that was really interesting, and it kind of proves the point we're talking about with this individualism, the top 40 was so diverse and so eclectic. Um, I love the word plethora, so I like to throw it in anytime I can. But there was just this plethora of music genres. And if you look at the top 40, even the top 10, you would have everything from like a, a Debbie Gibson right next to a Warrant, yeah. next to uh, you know Grandmaster Flash. I mean, yeah. you have this incredible mix of music. And then, oh, let me just throw in like Kenny Rogers who happened to be yeah. at the same time. Yeah. 
I think Kenny Rogers was one of the first country crossovers, wasn't he? He was, yeah, yeah, he was actually. Yeah. I remember yeah. my friends going, "You got to listen to this album, The Gambler." I'm like, "What is it? It's country, fuck country." Yeah. Uh, but you know, I've been a, I, I think I've always been a Kenny Rogers fan. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, that doesn't yeah. exist anymore. You know, the top forty, everything. I mean, I hate to sound old, but I mean, legitimately, everything does sound very much the same, and it's about that that package. Find yeah. that works, make a lot of money from it, and stick to it. And, and then, uh, and then comedy. Yeah, a lot of great comedy that came yeah. out. The Comedy Store, Live at the Improv. Uh, I mean, what a great comedy era that the 80s were. You had uh, all the great comedians. Uh, George Carlin, of course, George Carlin was around oh, yeah. back in the 50s and 60s. But uh, you had... Uh, Eddie Murphy. I saw Eddie Murphy raw live. Yeah, Eddie Murphy. You saw, you saw it live, live? I saw it live. Damn, dude. That, that, uh, that, that, uh, that's the reason I'm still single. It was incredible. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, I always stay away from the Ritz crackers. Uh, the uh, or hold on, it's the saltine crackers. Anyway, whatever you get me. Um, but so many great comedians out of that culture. I mean, for me, just everything was vibrant and lively. When grunge came along, I was like, "What the hell is this depressing shit?" Yeah. Um, I am a Nirvana's fan now. I like Nirvana, but at the time when grunge came out, you were just like, wow, we went from bright colors and rainbows and sunlight to uh, some really dark shit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was the path we were on. Some people see that. Uh, Alice and James down in a hole. I mean, we went deep. Yeah, we went, we were really dark. Like we were just yeah. right up the deep end. And I was a Metallica fan. So I was already pretty dark, but I was just like, what the hell is this crap? And, uh, you know, it's, and, and, but it was a collective time. It was a great time. Just, just so many wonderful things politically, so many crazy things going on. I think in the eighties, didn't we have the fall of the Berlin wall in 89? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the mind's starting to go. Crazy. Yeah, was, I'll tell you, it was, it was an incredible decade. And, um, when you talk about the movies, for example, uh, one of the reasons that and people say, well, why, why eighties movies? What, what's, you know, what is it about 80s movies that they, they keep coming back? And so even now, I have friends who have kids that are 20 years old, 22 years old, and some of their favorite movies are from the 80s. And yeah. so you think about why is that? And I think part of it was if you go back to the 80s and you look at the types of movies that were being made, today, if you make a movie and you get halfway through the movie and you realize my movie's not good or the acting, the dialogue, whatever it is, something's not good. I have a big enough budget. I'll just throw a couple million dollars at some CGI. And then everybody will say, you know, special effects. Everybody will say, man, you got to go see this movie in the theater. How many times have you heard that? You got to go see this movie. In the 80s, they didn't have that option. So if you wrote a bad movie, if, you, if your movie was bad from a character development perspective, a dialogue perspective, a plot, people weren't going to go. And the, the, the markets that are open today for a bad movie to make money anyway weren't there. So you spent six months at the box office in the U.S. I mean, this is real, four to six months. And then five months later, you're on HBO. And then four months later, you're in the video store. And that was pretty much it. That was all the market there was. And now if your movie doesn't make money in the U.S., you send it overseas and you can make money off of it there. And it's hard not to make your money back now. Then they didn't have a choice. They, they, they couldn't throw special effects at it. So, Maybe they had to work harder to make really good movies because now yeah. some of the stuff they make nowadays, you're just like, you're just like, what the hell? I mean, did you know that was going to go directly to video and you just phoned it in or something? Um, 
you know, it's just one of those things where you just like, just like, what, what the hell went on? Like, did you know this was going on the VCR? But there's not VCRs anymore. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, there are. You can get them on eBay. But, uh, but, the, but yeah, you can. Um, but the thing is, with these, with these, with these, I actually own a VCR. I just realized. I thought, yeah, I actually have a VCR because I actually have tapes. My mom gave me some tapes of my childhood. She had the old eight millimeters reels put on the on the 60 millimeter eight, whatever, put on the video. So one of these days, I guess I got to go ahead and put on a CD or wait, those are gone too. <laughs> yeah, but everything, you know, listen, I have a record player again, so vinyl's coming back. Yeah. But I mean, the, the great thing about the 80s too is like you lived, you lived, you still, you caught the album era and the CD era. And like me, you probably went into the CD record store and you would spend like four fucking hours like just wandering the different albums looking through them going you know reading the liner notes trying to figure out if you wanted to plunk down your 12 dollars for that lp yeah absolutely <laughs> and then you know, then i would go next door to the arcade and spend a bunch of quarters playing dragon's lair or Galaga or something, you know. I mean, that's that's another thing that, that I yeah, Galaga and, and all the different things. I mean, yeah. in the in the early eighties, we had the arcade uh, shops, and you went there, the pile of four quarters, and they had the big arcade machines, and and that was how you played video games. And that's then eventually, cool. Commodore sixty fours and Apple computers came out, and you know, you had little tape memory, the cassette tape memory. You know, I love that. There's a meme I always see on. Uh, on uh, on Facebook and social media, where it shows a cassette and it shows a pencil and says, "If you know what to do with this, you probably grew up in the '80s." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd be like, "People, hey, what are you doing?" I'm rewinding my Van Halen tape, man. I'm trying to get back to the beginning. <laughs> my Walkman batteries are dead, man. I gotta, I just gotta rewind this thing. <laughs> you know, the problem was they do the. They they'd make the cassettes and they you know they have the A side and the B side and the B side sometimes would be short especially if it was like Van Halen or Rolling Stones so it'd be like fifty miles of reel you had to do and you didn't want to burn through your battery so you just hand wind it with a pencil or a big pen. those are that was great. those are high tech days these kids have no idea what they're making. <laughs> suffrage. But all, everything that you're talking about is what made the eighties great and why that built character it. man that built character. Yeah, yeah, and rewind your own shit. <laughs> you talked about the whole idea of this evolution across you know the entire decade and all the things that there. I think there was just an explosion of stuff. I think is the best way to say it. Yeah, and, um, and that was it was the first time that we had that. You know, we there was this explosion of stuff, and there was something for everyone. I think that's the big yeah. thing. You had you know hip hop came into fashion, but there was still punk rock. You still had. You still had the Sex Pistols. You still had, you know, Johnny Rotten. You still had this. You still had the edgy punk. You had the hip hop coming in. You had, you know, for, if people wanted to listen to Debbie Gibson and Tiffany, they could listen to Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. You still had heavy metal. How huge they were, man! It was <laughs> you had the Cure. You had the Smiths. You had it all. And um, yeah, yeah, Debbie Gibson. No, wait, it was Tiffany that said, "I think we're alone now." I think that was they were both like just freaking too huge for their time they really I, I think they really set the stage for the mariah carey paola um i think that's when the decade really started dying i remember i was a huge uh and you you can correct me because you maybe studied the 80s when i did but for me where the 80s really started to die was when the paola started to die when the a and r men started showing up in 
in uh, bands uh, studios going no we need more synthesizers and we gotta we gotta control this and we gotta start getting uh we gotta start you know getting the dailies on what you guys are doing so we can listen to them and then shape the music you know there's more of a corporate shaping um i remember i was a huge kansas fan and i was really excited to get their new album and it was going to be freaking huge and the uh, CEO and president of MCI decided he wanted to bang Mariah Carey. And so he got in with her, and then he shit-canned every album that was coming out on the MCI label. Just just didn't market it, just threw it in the drink, really, when it came down to it. They issued the albums and said, <laughs> have fun with that. Um, and they put all their pail and money into Mariah Carey. And... To me, and then Paola's, you know, really started taking off. Lars talks about it from Metallica and other people. And I think that's what really started killing the 80s. It went from that bright, that bright, you know, spontaneous creative thing like you're talking about to where everyone was like, how do we make some money off of this? You know, the whole corporate thing. Yeah. My take on it, I don't know. No, no, it's, it's, it's a good take. I mean, and, I, and again, I think that's why it's it just things keep coming back there to the 80s because of the, there was this, this individual freedom, this creativity that we just, I don't think, I'm not sure that we're ever going to see it again. And no. it's the reason that when you think about the great characters of in movie history, so many of them come from the 80s and, yeah. and they've stuck with us. And so that's, you know, I mean, there's just not a decade like it, in my opinion. Video games, of course, uh, you know, really started hitting their stride, the PlayStation 3. I think uh, it came out in the 80s. Didn't it? Was, uh, no, I think it was. We had definitely had places. Yeah, yeah, it was trying to come out. You had Nintendo. You had Atari. Uh, yeah. Game was starting to come out, but uh, I think I think that's the reason um, things went so dark with grunge and everything. Uh, I think I think the money and the uh, the corporate powers that wanted to be, you know, like one of my favorite bands, Rush, talks about this. You know, like in 1986, I think it was. The A and R guys started showing up in the studio, going, "Hey, I'm the rep from the from the label, and uh, we're gonna help you guys sell albums here by manufacturing this music a little bit better than what you guys are doing." They're like, "Hey, we're just artists. We want to make beautiful music." And they're like, "No, we can're gonna meddle with it a bit." And uh, you need more synthesizers. You need more, you know, whatever. And and uh, and I think that's I think that's where the beauty of the '80s started to really come down that's why we got the 90s um that and a bunch of millennials got born so (laughs) (laughs) i kid my millennial folks you bastards um the um and then we had gen y and gen x and and now we know abortion is legal i'm just kidding seriously anyway uh so what else can we learn from your book yeah so um i i think i think what i I really I kind of want, a lot of times people ask me the question of how did you come up with this idea of tying 80s movies to the workplace? Like what would prompt this? And so uh, I think it's a good lesson because like a lot of people, I was in a, a job that just really wasn't working for me. And um, I kind of came home one day and I was I guess having a self-pity party of one, I guess you would say. Uh, nobody else. Was Fridays like, around here with a bottle of vodka. We call yeah. that Fridays around here with a bottle of vodka. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a self pity party of one. No one else is gonna feel sorry for you. And, uh, I was home on a Saturday afternoon and I was watching The Breakfast Club, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, great movie. Uh, I got the Don't You Forget About Me up there yeah. on the back, and also the uh, 
you know, if he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy, which is one of my favorite quotes. And yeah. so I was, watching, uh, I was watching The Breakfast Club, and at one point when uh, Principal Vernon comes in and the door is shut because Bender's taking the screws out of the door so he can't see into the library, and he says, you know, who, who, who took the screws out of the door? And Bender says, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. Perfect. <laughs> That's, That's a great movie. And it was, it was I kind of like sat up on my couch and I, it just resonated. Though that line, screws fall out all the time, the world's an imperfect place, just, it hit me in a weird way. And I realized like that your job, your career, your business can be an imperfect place. And from there, I just thought maybe I can take two things that I know well, which is business and 80s, and figure out a way to put them together. And I wrote an article on LinkedIn called What the Breakfast Club Taught Us About the Workplace. Oh, wow. And it just got this, I was shocked at the reaction that I got from it. People were responding, you know, from everywhere saying, hey, this is really cool. This is a great idea. So I wrote another one, Ferris Bueller and Work-Life Balance. And I, then I started thinking, maybe I have something here. And I started to look back at the movies and I realized if you just look at them in a different light, if you just, if you, if you break them down a little bit, you can find these really cool lessons in them. And, um, and it's usually what the characters said. So E.T., for example, you know, at the end of E.T., and by the way, I will tell you that I typically, I don't typically shed a tear at movies, but I did at two. You got one, e. yeah. one was E.T. when he was on the side in the riverbed and he was just oh, white and looked like he was going to die. What? And the other one was when Wilson floated away and cast away, when the volleyball floated away and oh, Tom yeah. said, Wilson, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know why, but I cried for a volleyball and an alien, but never... Everywhere else. Did Dad leave you as a kid or something? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I. A fine person. I'm just wondering. Just trying to figure out the whole volleyball thing. Yeah, it was weird. I don't know. I was I was actually at the movie theater with my buddy. Did a girl named Volleyball one day, and she just up and left you or something. She might. Even... I might have like put that in the. I might have put that away somewhere. Yeah, you might want to you know, see. <laughs> So if you if you, if you start finding your buy you want to buy guns you know just talk to see a shrink talk to somebody. My, my buddy was next to me and he said you know is it is it weird that I'm crying for volleyball and I said no man everybody in the theater is so I you um, know I, I I wish I'd gotten into that movie more For some reason I didn't get into that movie I don't know why and Tom Hanks is an incredible actor I love Tom Hanks uh, I don't know maybe I was just busy I remember watching it pieces because I. I just, uh, I don't know, maybe I was just really disconnected. And maybe I just didn't drink enough. I used to like to really drink and watch movies because then I get them more emotionally, you know, captured to them. It's a personal issue. Well, give it a shot. See what happens. Don't worry. I'm seeing it. Don't worry. I'm going to watch E.T. But no, what you bring up about The Breakfast Club yeah. is The Breakfast Club resonated with everybody in the 80s. That's why it was so huge and popular um, because it was what you're talking about. It was it was so many different people. It was the it was the loser. It was the reject. It was the the weird chick uh, who was kind of uh, uh, wasn't one of them. Kind of uh, what, what's that cure look that I'm thinking of with the dark, you know? Everything. Yeah, like, yeah, the yeah, yeah. And then you had the jock. I think it was Emilio Estevez. Yeah. Um, you just had this whole crew of people. I think that's the other reason that Saint Almost Fire was a big hit too, because. You had you had these people from all these different walks of life, all these different characters and different um, angles on life, and they they were still friends because they were joined at the hip from the high school sort of experience. Um, 
and uh, a lot of great movies from that era and stuff. Just yeah, really the Breakfast Club. I'm glad you brought that up because um, the Breakfast Club. You're right. There was the geek, the princess, the jock, the athlete, and the basket case. And so you had these five characters, and uh, every high school has them. That's that's the thing that that's yeah. why it still resonates today. Every single high school has those five characters in it, and they will long after we're gone. And so that's why that, that movie, I think, resonates so much with people is because we see ourselves in one of those characters or we see ourselves in all of those characters. And so um, it, really does, it really does resonate. And it will continue um, to resonate for years. And, in fact, uh, I was watching a documentary about finding John Hughes that a, uh, a couple of kids from Canada, they, uh, in 2009, before he passed away, they were on a mission to find John Hughes because they wanted him to understand – how much his movies had an impact on them. And they were in their late 20s at the time, so they weren't even old enough in the 80s to appreciate the movies. They had to watch them afterwards. But they were so taken by his, the movies, particularly The Breakfast Club, that they wanted to let him know, and they filmed this documentary when they went on a mission to go find him. And in the process, they interviewed high school kids, and they asked them, What's your, you know, do you know who John Hughes is? And they were like, oh, yeah. Have you ever seen The Breakfast Club? And they're like, my favorite movie ever. Ferris Bueller, love it. And these kids were 15. <laughs> years old but it's it just it's it's got it just resonates he knew how to talk to teenagers he knew what it was like to go through that and i i wish i had the i wish i had the power or the money to be able to get the breakfast club on broadway because i think it is it's it's perfect i'm really surprised someone has done it dude you you got a million dollar thing there Fuck I mean, yeah, man. Nobody's done it. It's it's shocking to me it's like a perfect hey, you should do it you got it you got to go get uh you know uh, and Frank, Andrew Lloyd, whoever that guy is that writes all those uh, Broadway musicals, you got to go have him punch one out. And, it's one room. And it's I think Lucas is the big playwright. What's yeah. that? I, everyone loved that movie. I mean, you probably you probably recently saw, uh, I call her AOC. I'm forgetting her name now. It's I had to Google it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, it wasn't it cool how she did the Breakfast Club dance? Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> all the Republicans freaked out, like, oh my God, I'm gonna read that in the Congress. So you're just like, no, that's really epic. <laughs> but she's 29, and so again, 29 years old, not even old enough, not not even old enough to be, you know, I don't even know, let's see, 29 years old, so 10, 20. So she wasn't even born in the 80s, but she's doing that dance, and I guess that's the whole thing that that's again, we go back to this idea of the 80s, and what is it about this decade that people are still still looking at it and saying. If I wasn't there, I would have been interested to be part of it. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take some of those things from the movies and I'm gonna use them. And it's pretty cool. I mean, it's like it's it's a you know going back to ET. Uh, ET taught us a, a really valuable lesson before it was even popular, and that was about social responsibility. And so you think about ET and you go back to that movie, and at the very end, ET says to uh, Gertie and um, Elliot, the last thing he says is "Be good," right? Be good. These are two words that he said before he went back home, be good. And that was all about being good to each other, being good to the planet, being good to the environment. That's what I took out of it. And you look at these companies today and part of the, the in the book, I talk about how some there's companies like Warby Parker and UB and um, uh, Tom's who built their business model on social responsibility, on giving back. And they're making a profit and they're giving back. They're doing the two things that you would want your business to do. And uh, it's pretty remarkable. So we've come all this way now where people can actually take a day off from work to volunteer 
and the companies encourage it instead of saying take a sick day or take your vacation day they're encouraging their employees to volunteer and get involved definitely i mean the, i i i think we moved away you know we we moved away from the corporate man the the ibm man if you remember that in the 60s uh, you know, you you weren't you weren't going to show up at IBM with a gray suit on or a gray hat. Everyone wore hats or gray shoes. You showed up in black, top to bottom, corporate uniform. You don't write outside the lines. You don't think outside the box. You follow the thing. And then we, you know, we went through the crazy '70s where everything was up and up was down, and there was the real sort of culture clash sort of thing. And then, of course, we went to the '80s where, like you say, it became much more. Like, hey, it's okay to be an individual, and being an individual is kind of cool. And let's see yeah. what Zora. It's it's good to have thirty-one flavors at the ice cream shop instead of just vanilla. So, yeah. uh, I remember my brother used to love vanilla ice cream, and God bless him because vanilla is good, especially if you get that white bean or bean vanilla. That's uh, really good. I can't. Do it. My, I I like it every now and then, but it's got to be really expensive, really good ice cream. You know what I mean? It can't just be that cheap crap. Uh, but uh, he loved vanilla, and I used to argue with him. I'm like, you, you got to, you know, have something that tastes like something. Vanilla tastes like vanilla. <laughs> but, uh, you know, hey, everyone did the different flavors. They're, they're wow. different uh, things they like and everything else. And uh, what a beautiful time. But, yeah, it was, it was fun to see AOC do that. Uh, and, and to me, that's, uh, for the last little while, that's what I was espousing the one I want in Congress. I'd love to have some more personality, some different people, some different aspects instead of a bunch of male suits and middle-aged guys. I'd love to have some flavor, some color, some different people, some different perspectives so that we become, you know, more representative of, of what America is. And that's, that's kind of what most of us saw in, uh, in uh, the Breakfast Club. I mean, you know, back then you had your cliques because you were in high school and you're like, yeah, I hate the, the new way people, fuck those people. And, you know, and, and Breakfast Club and some of the other movies that came out in that time, they showed that, hey, we can all, we can all, you know, hang out together. Like, I, I wasn't a big fan of uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, What's Her Face, uh, her name is Casey right now. I wasn't a big fan because it was kind of new wave-ish and tinkery, you know, synthesizers, but... You, you kind of had to do, you know, I kind of liked the song. It had a great catch to it. You know, girls, yes, one. Oh, Cindy Lauper. Yeah, Cindy Lauper. And I, it's a fun song. And it, it, yeah. it, it kind of responds to this, like, it's all some fun. It's all just uh, lighten up a little bit here and, and have some fun. And so what a great time. Anything else you want to share with us about the book? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's some serious lessons in there, but then there's some fun ones as well. Uh, you know, this guy that I have on my shirt right here, if you can kind of see, that's, you know, Spicoli, right? So, I mean, one of the greatest characters of all time. I mean, hands down, I don't care what anybody says, in every decade in the history of movies, it is one of the greatest characters of all time. You know what's funny is I just saw him yesterday on, I don't know what I was doing, I was searching through some site on music or something, and I saw the picture of Spicoli in the, the video cover they have for him. And I was like, I think what it was is I was on Netflix. And I was like, yeah, let's find some stuff to watch. And that came up, and I was like, man, if I ever meet him, I'm going to give him shit and call him Spicoli. Does he care? Because <laughs> he's, uh, he's such a serious guy. I'll probably get punched in the face. very serious. And it's funny that he that this was the character that really made him. <laughs> the character that propelled him. And so I talked about, like, the serious lessons in the book for business, you know, this the ideas of, uh, you know, Del Griffith from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles teaching us about how every 
company needs a great salesperson, you know, a very important lesson. But Spicoli taught us something as well, which is a, kind of a fun one. And that is that, you know, make sure that when you order lunch in the office to order enough for everybody. Because if you don't, you know, <laughs> it's, he gets the pizza and, and he says, you know, there's nothing like a little, nothing wrong with a little feast on our time. And of course, Mr. Hand says, you know, you're right, Mr. Spicoli, and gets everybody to come up to have, you know, a piece of pizza. And so there's some funny lessons in there as well about, you know, just having some fun with some of these movies and, and the things that they may have taught us as well. So yeah, it's, it's quite the journey looking back. To me, the, some of the music was some of the best in the 80s, some of the things in the movies, of course. And they're still retreading the movies from the 80s now in Hollywood. I mean, it's just, it's just a never-ending cycle yeah. of, of all the great movies. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, it's amazing to me how many Star Wars they keep coming up with. I'm just like, seriously, another Star Wars movie? Um, as long as I don't see the Death Star in them, I'm kind of okay with another Star Wars movie because I'm I'm tired of seeing the Star Wars the Death Star. To my Star Wars fans, I'm sorry, man. Just we need a new plot. That's all I'm saying. Um, but you know, then again, you go back to you go back to a lot of the movies that were made uh, in the '80s that came out of um, what's his face from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s Japan, uh, Akira Kawasawa. And how that affected them and everything else. So uh, maybe you should do a book on how the previous culture affected the '80s. Or I don't know if you talked about that in your book, but what kind of got us the '80s? I don't know. That might be. Uh, no, I haven't, but that would be an interesting one for sure. Um, I think the the when you talked about the, um, uh, the 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 idea of like this this kind of um, explosion of things that were that were happening in the '80s. And why these, you know, you, you mentioned Star Wars, for example, right? And so they're remaking all of these movies now. And I, I really don't like it. Like, I would rather they just re-release the original. First of all, it would cost less money to re-release the original. So I never understood why they don't do that. And then, you know, I'm really, I'm at the point where I'm like, please do not make remake any more Patrick Swayze movies. Just let him, let his movies speak for him because he did yeah. some phenomenal movies in the 80s. And they keep remaking them, and the remakes are terrible. They're like, always terrible. They're these. They're stuff you don't touch. You yeah. don't. You don't freaking cover Stairway to Heaven. You just don't. Yeah. You just leave it alone. There's there's things there should be locked, like whiter shade of pale. You can get away with that because everyone's done it, and you know you just got to do it because everybody else the fuck has. It's kind of like uh, Pamela Anderson. Um, but, uh, don't remake Roadhouse. No, I love Pamela Anderson. She was my she was my eighties, uh, probably early love. Uh, Roadhouse, yeah, you can't don't don't make Roadhouse. And what's funny? They're doing it. They're doing it. Ronda Rousey. I think I remember hearing that. And and the problem was the the funny thing is who who's the cowboy in that? Elliot. Elliot. Uh, uh, he's the cowboy. Sam Elliot. Sam Elliot. What's funny about Sam Elliott is he's the same goddamn age in that movie that he is today. Yeah. He looks like the same grizzled old motherfucker that he is. Today. Yeah. He hasn't aged a year, and he was old then. Like, but uh, I remember I was real upset when he got stabbed and died. That was real. That I think <laughs> I cried at that moment because he's a badass. He was my John Wayne dude. Yeah, um, he was my John Wayne. He always has been uh, in some of the great movies he's always been in. Uh, you know, he, he was never going to get caught on uh, on a movie like Brokeback Mountain. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's a real Marlboro old man's man. In fact, I was surprised he wasn't like the Marlboro man all the time. But uh, what was the other great movie that he was in? 
with the uh, two brothers, the Ethan brothers, uh, that they did where he, it was that classic movie with the bridges and uh, uh, the, they were bowling and, and stuff. And, and he was in the movie and, and uh, I forget what it is. Some, somebody will fill it in, I'm sure. So let's wrap the show up, Chris. Anything yeah. more you want to plug? Anything more you want to tell us about the book and what you got going on? Yeah, sure. So I think the important thing with the, the stuff that I've been working on with the 80s and the workplace is, um, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking at events and conferences. And I talk about the, this, this idea of 80s movies and what they teach us about the workplace. And I think the important thing is that you, when you work in a business, you know, you, you're, you have people come in consistently teaching you about different things with corporate training. You go to a conference or an event and you hear a lot of the same things from, you know, business and about leadership and management. And uh, that, some of it's very good. Um, some of it is difficult to retain. And I think what I do with my, with my content, what I think is good is when you teach about inclusion and you use chunk and sloth to teach someone about inclusion, you, the hope is that they retain it and they take it back to the workplace. Instead of you know, uh, talking about inclusion and hearing uh, you know, the same kind of ideas and the same situations, to be able to say, I'm going to teach you about inclusion and I'm going to use chunk and sloth to do it. I'm going to teach you how there really are no stupid questions in the workplace and I'm going to take the kids from Stand By Me and I'm going to show you and teach you how they taught us that really there are no stupid questions and that the simplest questions sometimes actually create the biggest brainstorms in the office. When uh, the kids from Stand By Me said, we're sitting around a campfire and, and uh, you know, had the conversation about if Mickey's a mouse and Donald's a duck and Pluto's a dog, what's Goofy? And of course, you know, well, Goofy's a dog. And he says, yeah, but he drives a, hat, he drives a car and wears a hat. <laughs> yeah, and of course he says, well, yeah, what the hell is Goofy? And that idea that it started this brainstorm from this, what should have been like kind of a stupid question actually created this big conversation about what Goofy was. And so I think that's what I, I really enjoy about the book. And what I hear from people is the lessons that are in there for, for the workplace and for business and even for life are, you can retain them because you're thinking about these characters and then you're applying those characters to the lesson. And, uh, and I think that's pretty, I think, I think it's pretty unique and it's, and it's, and it's a lot of fun for me. I'll tell you that. So. It's pretty interesting how the, the, the circular nature of uh, movies reflect movies and music reflect life and culture. And then we get our culture back from it and uh, it, it feeds itself uh, yeah. as it would. And the uh, second book, I'm writing the second book in the first three chapters, just to give you an idea, actually the first four. So the first three chapters in the second book, I have uh, Caddyshack, the Princess Bride and the Outsiders. Oh yeah, finish those three. Did and you the, cover the Sandlot? That was a you know, pretty epic book. But it's epic. I love it. I mean, I I uh, I love the movie, but it's the '90s. I may have to figure out a way to sneak it into one of my books because I love the movie. My book for the '90s would be uh, how how you guys missed all the greatest music and videos ever from the '80s, and you bastardized humanity. <laughs> That would be, I don't know. I'm just kidding, my millennials. Um, <clears throat> no, it's just, it went really dark with grunge. I remember I remember seeing uh, grunge come out, and I was like, what the fuck is going on in Seattle, uh, Harold? Um, that, was they, the, that was the end of Warrant and Winger and all those guys. That was yeah, the like all the, I remember this, uh, one of my models from my model, he came up, and she saw my 4,000 CD collection, and she goes, you're a butt rocker. I was like, what's a butt rocker? That sounds gay. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, uh, she goes, uh, that's all that long hair. And I'm like, get out of my, get out of my studio. Um, 
And uh, but she still was hot, so I still took her out. But after she was not allowed in the CD room ever again. Um, but uh, you know, no, it's was, it was great music. Uh, you know what's funny is my um, talent agency. We had an acting and modeling talent agency years ago, and Emilio Estevez's uh, uncle, Joe Estevez, was uh, with our agency. He was with a lot of agencies, uh, and he used to call me. And he sounds just like Martin Sheen. In fact, he did the voiceover for a lot of Martin Sheen stuff. Uh, and and so it was funny to learn the whole story of the Estevez family, which is their real name, not Sheen. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I kind of got to know a little bit about the family from that angle. So, yeah, it was kind of cool because when you watch Breakfast Club, you're like, God, Amelia's a fucking dick. But, you know, most jocks were back then. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that because I wasn't one. I was the nerd. I was the weak nerd. I was like, I have to run a third lap? This is, uh, I was like this thin little thing. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so give us the plugs in the book where we can get it and anything you're doing with it. Yeah, yes, yeah, so appreciate the time. Um, the first book, uh, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace, and it's mixtape number one, is available on Amazon in uh, paperback in uh, Kindle ebook. Um, half About halfway through the second book right now, and that'll have uh, more distribution. I'm actually, we'll have a publisher for that one, so I won't be self-publishing anymore, which is going to be great for me. Although, I do like the name of my publishing company, which is Farmer Ted Publishing, and if you know that one from 16 Candles, so... Uh, that's, that's the name of my little publishing company that I created, Farmer Ted Publishing. Uh, and, um, yeah, so you can find me at chrisclues.com. I'm mm -hmm. available to speak at events and conferences um, at any time. I have quite a few of them coming up in the next few months as well. So uh, my content fits any theme, any industry, and I love getting on stage and talking about this stuff. Uh, 80s, at 80s Pop Culture on Twitter, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn are Chris Clues. And if I could mention one more thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show. So, um, unfortunately, as life would have it, um, a few days ago, uh, we lost, I lost a friend of mine uh, from college. He has a 14-year-old uh, daughter, and he died in a car accident. It's just like that. You know, he's gone. And so, uh, you know, people set up GoFundMes and different things to help. Uh, they, if you went to his Facebook page, you would see that, that she was his heart and soul. Um, so, what I've done is I've taken, taken my book here, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches About Today's Workplace, and uh, all the royalties through March 3rd are going to go or going to his daughter. So um, if you're thinking about purchasing the book or the ebook, if you're interested in the content and you think it's cool, or if you just want to support a 14 year old girl who just lost her, her father, um, that's the way to do it. So I started on February 19th and we're doing pretty well and we'll continue through March 3rd. All 100% of the royalties from ebook and paperback are going to go, go to uh, his daughter. So there you well, have it. Um, so, anyway, we appreciate you guys coming by the show today. Uh, be sure to check out uh, Chris's book on Amazon.com or any of the different uh, Amazon book or booksellers out there in the marketplace. Uh, we certainly appreciate you guys being here. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us on YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss, hit that bell notification button. Also, go to twitch.tv forward slash Chris Voss. You can see the different gaming, gaming interviews we're doing there with game developers as well. You can, of course, follow Chris Voss, uh, thechrisvossshow.com. You can go to chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. I've got too many .coms. And you can go to, of course, see the show also on bookauthorpodcast.com. So, uh, you know, 
you can go check it all out from there and be sure for the show your friends, neighbors, relatives, dogs, cats, all this sort of good stuff. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. .com. Hey, coming here with a, another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, we, of course, have all the best guests on the Chris Voss Show. Com. And today's going to be a dual podcast show. We're going to have the Chris Voss Show podcast, of course, hosting the show. And it will also be found on our book author podcast. So you can go to bookauthorpodcast.com and you can see that. You can decide which uh, podcast you want to subscribe to at any times. And, of course, you can go to the chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com and subscribe to all the different shows. I think there's six or seven of them over there. But uh, if you want to listen to 100% book author interviews, you can do that on the uh, bookauthorpodcast.com or, uh, or you can just see everything we have on the chrisvosshow.com podcast as well. Uh, we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com forward slash chrisvoss. If you're into gaming, you can also go to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash Chris Voss. We're giving away some really cool uh, game codes and different things over there, so you can see some of that stuff as well. Uh, today's guest is Chris Clues. Oh, my gosh. He's a marketing executive speaker and an author of the book, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace. It's the first in a series that finds the lessons from the 1980s movies for the workplace today. And he even has a second one due late in the spring that he's coming out with another book. He's uh, along with being an author, he's a speaker, frequent business and eighties podcast guest. Chris is currently the head of marketing for DHL resilience 360. And he resides in Deerfield beach, Florida. We won't hold the Florida against him. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, Chris. I kid all my Florida friends. You guys have the, I don't know what is, what's going on down there, man, but there's something in you guys' water. We have Florida man down here. That's what they always say. Florida, Florida, man is, Florida man's in the news all the time. Oh, yeah. You just got, you guys just had a mayor get arrested down there for uh, being a doctor in his own house or something because they pulled his license and they just did a big raid on him. Yeah. So, and then another one just uh, a couple weeks ago for licking people's faces or something. I don't know. Around here, that's what I call Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about you. Let's get to know uh, Chris a little bit better. I mean, you've done a few things. You've been a stand-up comic, I understand, your uh, past history. Uh, yeah, I do uh, stand-up comedy for fun uh, here and there. I just uh, go up on stages once in a while. And the first time I did it, I actually decided just to go straight to the improv for an open mic. So typically when I go do something, I go it's hard. I go all in. I go hard. And um, I don't. Go gradual. So. Sounds like your first marriage. Uh, the uh, <laughs> so you did the improv, the comedy improv on uh, Sunset Boulevard there. I think it's uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, West Palm Beach, Florida. They have them all over the place. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one of my friends uh, used to babysit. Uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the kid from the um, not from the improv, but from the comedy store. That's what I'm thinking of. But uh, yeah, that's that's it's quite the it's quite challenging to do improv. I would imagine. Well, I mean, I was lucky. I did a, I do open mics where you can prepare your material for about yeah. five minutes and then you get up there and do your thing. And it's, um, it's, I, I'll tell you the first time you do it, it's pretty terrifying. Try yeah. looking out over this crowd and knowing that you don't know 95% of the people have no idea who you are and you have to try to make them laugh at your jokes. And, uh, 
it's you can feel your heart coming through your chest. You're pretty sure everybody else can see it too. So yeah, yeah. I remember one time I did. I was uh, speaking uh, uh, at an event uh, back east somewhere, and they had like uh, they had uh, the front row. They didn't tell me, but the whole front row, the speaking folks were were, were a group of people who were deaf, and uh, and I was telling jokes, and like most of the room was laughing, but the front row I couldn't get to laugh. And it really started driving me crazy. And I started yeah. losing it in my speech. <laughs> I'm like, Why? And they're just looking at me like, who's this fucking guy? And uh, it just threw my whole speech off because I, I didn't know those guys were like the deaf crew up front. And I'm like, I'm like telling them jokes. I'm trying to, you know, interact with them a little bit. And I'm just, you know, dying on stage with, with this front row thing. And, you know, it becomes one of those things where as a comedian, you just start, you know, you focus in on the guy you, who's not laughing because you're like, what do I got to do to get this guy to laugh? And, uh, yeah, I, I, I came off stage just ready to quit ever speaking again. And I'm like, what the fuck is with the front row? And they're just like, yeah, they're all deaf. They can't hear you, which is probably good anyway. So I'm not that funny. I encourage anybody who, if you have a fear of speaking, if you have a fear of getting up in front of people, putting together five minutes of comedy material, go up on an improv stage or go up on a stage at any comedy, your local comedy club, do that five minutes. And I can assure you, you will never have a problem getting in front of anybody at work ever again for meetings, presentations. It's the best thing. You can do. And when you do, when you, if you do a comedy uh, stand-up tryout in LA, you're literally there. I think you pay like 15 bucks for five minutes or something. And you probably have to buy some drinks or something too, but everybody in the room, is they're doing the same thing you are trying to try out. So they don't they don't even want you to succeed. They're just not even gonna laugh. They're just like, fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. You're basically sitting in a room trying to make a bunch of people that just want to see you fail and that also paid 15 bucks for five minutes. They're just like, get the fuck off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a brutal business writing jokes and and being they're trying to be funny or being funny and I think some people they get out and they they, they you, you learn you're not as funny as you as you do but yeah it's definitely a trial by fire when it comes down to it especially improv so you did a little bit of that you grew up of course in the eighties which is where you wrote this book out of the experience and knowledge I guess that you gained from uh, getting going through one of the greatest periods of music and pop culture probably yeah. ever I'm I, I clearly biased with my age obviously. Um, and you're a huge sports fan. You've done some NCAA, NCAA basketball stuff, PGA stuff. Yeah, like so, so I've been lucky enough to do some pretty cool sports sponsorships, uh, NCAA basketball, Major League Baseball, PGA. And my favorite was the UFC. Uh, sponsored a bunch of UFC fighters um, about five or six years ago, uh, which was just pretty awesome. That was a that was a really uh, that was a lot of fun that experience. And um, so yeah. And you also did some, uh, this is kind of interesting that's in your bio, you did some uh, stint as a bellman at several hotels on the Disney property and did security for celebrities at yeah. Planet Hollywood back in the day. Back in the they day. Good, uh, interesting Disney celebrity uh, inter uh, celebrity stories, anything uh, salacious? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some interesting, you see some interesting things for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. But working at Disney was pretty cool. I mean, it was a, it's a great experience if you're in your 20s and you're out of college and you want to learn about true customer service. Um, it's, a great, it's a great place to learn. 
Yeah. Did you ever get into any arguments with uh, Mickey Mouse or anything like that? You ever? You ever no, no? once, but that was it. Yeah. I, it'd be funny. I'd go to work at Disney, and then I'd find out that the guy who's uh, playing Mickey Mouse is like an asshole, and like he has a, some sort of beef with me that I don't know what the beef would be. And then we just have to, you know, I'd just be like, hate. I'd hate Mickey Mouse after that, and just ruin my whole childhood. That's probably the way. Yeah, I, I was. I was lucky. I didn't have to be around those guys too much. So I think uh, the. the um, but I, but I did. The experience was pretty cool. I will say. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, you got to wear a goddamn costume all day long in uh, seventy degree heat in California. Are you really that happy? I mean, I'd be drinking on the inside of the costume. That's what I'd be doing. I'd be like, I'd be like, uh, I'd be like, uh, uh, what's that Santa movie with what's his face? Uh, I'd be that guy with That's the costume. Cool. I'd be fired from Disney like in five minutes. They'd just be like, hey, man, this guy's got to go. Plus, it'd be a really fat fucking Mickey Mouse, so that would probably be inappropriate in some way. <laughs> You'd be too tall, man. Trust me. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I'll tell you, it is a, it's a pretty cool place to, to kind of, I mean, I guess, cut your teeth. And uh, when I moved to Orlando, I actually just literally after college, I packed up my car and a couple hundred bucks and uh-huh. drove. And it was 1993, so we had no cell phones. There was no way to communicate with anybody on the way down except stopping at a payphone. Wow, yeah, I remember those days. South Carolina, I'm here, I'm there. And uh, ended up in Orlando and uh, was lucky enough to land a job at Disney to keep myself going because before that, I was literally eating pasta without the sauce. I could afford the pasta or the sauce, and the pasta was more filling. So, so I, I remember those days. You know, sometimes you'd, you'd just eat the – the uncooked top ramen just so you'd have some solid food for a change yeah. instead of yeah. just top ramen <laughs> Sprin- you sprinkle that seasoning package on there because like you know that's seasoning right there so let's get to your book what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace so what the hell is this book about like what is what is going on with this uh, is it ferris bueller's day off where i just need to uh call in sick for the day for the workplace yeah well that's that's one lesson actually <laughs> Uh, life balance. <laughs> so let's talk about the book. What's that? Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, that you can get this on Amazon, yeah. I imagine, in a few different places. Um, and uh, uh, so you 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 basically take the lessons from the eighties, different things from the pop culture, and how how we can apply it to the workplace. Yeah. So yeah. So you can buy the book on Amazon, and uh, actually have a website as well, chrisclues.com. C-L-E-W-S, uh, same on Facebook and LinkedIn, and then also on Twitter. I was actually lucky enough, surprisingly, about eight months ago, I went for my Twitter handle, and at 80s Pop Culture was available. So it's pretty easy. It ties right back to the book. Seriously? That was available? I not believe it. It was That's a sign. Crazy. It was a sign, I think. So I have at 80s Pop Culture as my uh, Twitter handle. And, yeah, the book's available on Amazon, and I'm actually about halfway through, close to halfway through the second book. Uh-huh. Uh, and then that one's going to be have larger distribution. So, uh, what's the, name of the second book? Do you have a name for it yet? Is it going to be the '90s pulp culture? No, actually, I'm I'm going to take the I'm going to put my flag on top of the '80s mountain. And Are you? You're going there. down with the '80s. They're just yeah. going to ride that fucking train all the way. Good for you. And I've got um, the uh, so the, so there'll be what '80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. And the first one is mixtape number one. The mixtape number two. Mixtape number three. Uh, because we all used to make mixtapes in the 80s. So, um, and each each one of them will take 10 movies from the 80s and find the business lessons in them. 
That's awesome, man. I've seen and I've seen the videos of you where you get up and you talk about uh, and you're speaking about uh, what you guys learned and lessons learned. Give us some examples of, of some of the lessons you used in your book. Yeah, excellent. So uh, I'll give you one right off the bat that I think is a really important one for today's workplace, and that's uh, from the Goonies. So if you remember the Goonies, they were just a rat bunch of kids, and uh, two, of the, two of the characters in particular really like stuck with me. And it was Chunk and Sloth. And um, both of them phenomenal characters. Actually, Chunk now is an entertainment lawyer out in L.A. And he's done fantastic. He's doing fantastic on that side of the business. Uh, Sloth was played by Ted Matuzak, who was an Oakland Raider back in the day. Oh, yeah. okay. and, uh, so they taught us about inclusion. And they taught us a really important lesson about inclusion in the workplace. If you remember back in the movie, Chunk was thrown down in the basement uh, by the Fratelli family, right? And Sloth was chained up down there. He was one of their brothers, but he was chained up because of the way he looked, that he had this stone-shaped head and his ears that wiggled and eyes that were offset and missing some teeth. He was just, he was a strange-looking guy. My and parents then, the same with me. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And you might like Baby Ruth too, right? You didn't have to so, agree with me, but we'll get, you know. He, uh, he gets down there, and, of course, you know, uh, Sloth is uh, chained up, and eventually when he gets unchained, he picks up Chunk, and Chunk says, man, you smell like Fizz Ed. And so not only is Sloth awkward looking, but he smells like Fizz Ed. And Chunk looks past all of this. All he wants to do is be his friend. That's all he yeah. cares about. Wants to be his friend, bring him into the group, include him, the, the whole idea of inclusion, include him into the group. And in return, what did they get? They found out that Sloth's greatest asset was his loyalty. And at the end of the movie, he saves their lives. He puts himself in front of his family and saves their lives over his family and shows his loyalty to them. And so there's a really important lesson in there for the workplace. There is. Fuck family. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, some, some people do that in the workplace too, man. It's meant yeah. to be. Well, that's true too. I mean, uh, I've had a few friends who have ignored their uh, family and ended up yeah. in messy divorces because they work too much. But, yeah. um, you know, it's either that or you got to pay the bills, whatever. You can't make everyone happy. But uh, I have, I've had personal relationships where, uh, you know, I've worked too much and, and let them slide. And sometimes there were business relationships where, where, uh, where we focused so much on the business that the friendship fell away and then the partnership fell away in the business. So those, uh, I don't know, some different ways that, that happens. Well, no, it's a good, it's a good segue into uh, when you mentioned Ferris Bueller earlier. Mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller taught us about work-life balance, but in, in a couple of interesting contexts. And I'll kind of set up the story about why I came up with that idea of Ferris Bueller and work-life balance. Uh, we're not talking about being at work at extended hours. Back in This is going back probably 1998, 99. And I was working for an interactive ad agency. So you know I've been in digital marketing for a while. 1998, we were getting 25% click-through rates on our banners because people were just fascinated by, wait a minute, I click this and then I go to another website? This is incredible. <laughs> they didn't care about what the website was. They were just fascinated by this animation. <laughs> And um, I was working for a client at the agency. My mom had come down to see me. I hadn't seen her in a couple of years. I had moved to Florida and I was just busy doing things. And she came down on a Friday. I was supposed to meet her at a restaurant at eight o'clock. This is in the book. And um, I didn't get there until after 10 because I was working on a project for a client who, by the way, a year later, nothing really mattered anyway. The, the site was out of business. The company was out of business. And, you know, I missed this opportunity with my mom and I left her at the restaurant for several Ooh. hours by herself. Well, you're going uh, to hell, man. One of the 
greatest people you could ever meet. I mean, one of the, just a gentle soul and very patient. And so uh, thank you for me. But out of that, you know, I learned a valuable lesson about what's important. And um, Ferris teaches us that in a little bit of a different way. But what he does, he goes one step further. And what he teaches us is think about when you're in your workplace, your, your place of business. There's always, you always have a camera. There's always a camera and fry at your business. Somebody who's typically always unhappy. They're just, things aren't going well in their life. They, they tend to, to be negative, not in a way that, that pushes people away necessarily. I told you not to talk about me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Is that you? No, I'm just. So it doesn't, that doesn't seem like you. So, um, so Cameron Fry, everybody has a Cameron Fry at work. And so Ferris taught us not only about work-life balance, but that it's important that sometimes, you know, you feel good about your life. Things are going well for you. To make sure that if you take that day off, that you take your camera for your work because they need, you know, make force them like he did, force them to come with you. Don't let yes. them sit there and say, you know, when Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go <laughs> to come with you um, on that day off and and spend some time away. You know, my Tinder has that same sort of click through rate about twenty five percent. Mostly women going, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? They just they just want to see you know how messed up this dude is, and then they screenshot me and send me to all their friends on Facebook and go, "Can you believe this asshole's on fucking Tinder?" Um, so there's not. You're on twenty five percent as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's no there's no follow click through. The the sales funnel ends there. That's yeah. pretty much what it is. Um, but uh, you know whatever. At least I'm popular. So whatever that means, I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of cool things we can learn. I think, I think a lot of people, uh, that changed a lot of people's mindset, that movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off and gave people, uh, kind of a perspective thing. Um, also, uh, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest scenes in the movie is when they leap the car, when the car yeah. goes off and it plays the Imperial Star Wars music. That's, that's just, uh, such a great scene in that movie. <laughs> It goes off. I mean, the 80s had some of the best times, some of the best movies, some of the best TVs. I mean, it was a really great creative age. Um, and it was, and a lot of it came from, I think, the late 70s. And in, in a lot of creative studios, whether it was movies or music uh, or anything else, uh, there, there still was this creative thing that was going on that wasn't quite the controlling part, the controlling part of corporate culture and uh, manipulation uh, uh what's the word i'm looking for pay the pay uh, the the payola sort yeah. of stuff that came around with mariah carey um you know back in those days they would take uh, music labels would take bands and they would let them make the music they wanted for the most part and so they would make this music and sometimes it would be good sometimes it would be not really great and then they'd be like, well, you know, we'll give you three or four albums to work out that band thing and that music thing, you know. And then, you know, they progressively get better. And then all of a sudden some band that, you know, had a bunch of shitty albums would all of a sudden have that hit album that would hit in the 80s. And you're just like, all right, you know, those, those four albums they did made, you know, everything better when it finally came out. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, I think it was the A&R men started showing up and the corporate people started showing up going, oh, we need to. We need to take this magic and try and control it and start really killing the the creationism the creative the creationism the creative juices of the 1980s and then you know you got to the 90s and and uh, everything went downhill after that um 
the uh, <coughs> Nirvana, <coughs> excuse me, uh, grunge. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My millennials. I have some ideas about that, by the way, about the whole creative thing in the 80s and how yeah, that. I'd love to hear your take on it because I just spewed out mine. I could be so, wrong. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I think there was a couple of things that happened in the 80s. Uh, we were we were moving towards independence in terms of people, people being able to be as you know the Pesh Mode said, people are people, right? So people being able to be who they wanted to be. And it was the, the first time in the 80s where somebody could walk down the street with a purple mohawk. And sure, there were people that kind of looked twice, but a lot of people just walked right by him and said, you know, that's it. It's a purple mohawk. Big deal. And that was the first time in the 80s that we experienced that. I think that that um, independence and creative spirit and everybody kind of starting to accept people for who they were. Yeah. And that drove a lot of the creati creativity, right? Where in the 70s, everyone was just kind of like a freak and looked down upon because everyone lived in the 60s with that that IBM sort of model where everyone wears a black suit and a black tie and a black hat and shows up to work and no one has any color or personality. And, and yeah, uh, who was one of the big pop culture things that really changed, uh, the look and feel of all that Madonna. And then, uh, uh, Cindy Lauper, Cindy Lauper was huge at affecting uh, pop culture during that thing. And really, you know, going color, uh, culture club, uh, was all about color and personality. Uh, I think The Cure. Um, I'm trying to think of some other bands, but yeah, it was it was really this great time of of experimentation and uh, trying new things. And and uh, you know, there were some people in the older crowd that are like, you know, fucking kids. Um, but for the most part, it was uh, it was just a great time. There's there's wonderful things that were happening. The sound was getting better. We we. There was a lot of individualism that came out of that. You saw the launch of uh, the Walkman, the Sony Walkman. I remember being so proud of that. And for the first time, you were free of the radio, which you, if you grew up in my era, you literally sat by the radio and you called the DJ and said, play my favorite song. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like a song that they issued nowadays. Um, but, uh, to Sally from John for... Yeah, I, I would, I would call... I would call the DJ like relentlessly. Like it's amazing they didn't have call blocking back then because they're like, "Look, we're not going to play Steely Dan reeling the years yet. That comes up every you know top of every hour. Just calm down, buddy." <laughs> and uh, but you had so much, you had so much great stuff. Uh, uh, I think disco was just rounding out at that time. You had uh, you know uh, lots of great heavy metal music, Metallica. <laughs> um, uh, lots. I mean, just so much great music came out of there. Uh, great movies. Uh, I mean, they're still making, you know, reruns of of all the great movies of the '80s. Star Wars. You know, it's kind of like every every great creative thing kind of came out of that era. Yeah, you know, I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. This idea that the '80s, the, the decade of the '80s, and the, the creative energy that there that was there, and why. And so, what's really interesting is I was doing research for the book, and one of the things that I do in each chapter. Before I get into the movie and the workplace lessons that it taught us, I set up the time frame. So I say if, it, if a movie came out in June of 1983, for example, I went back and I looked at what the top 40 music was, what the movies at the box office were, the television. And I talk a little bit about that, the kind of taking back to that time, or if you weren't around in that time, to kind of show you what it was like. And what I found that was really interesting, and it kind of proves the point we're talking about with this individualism, the top 40 was so diverse and so eclectic um, I love the word plethora, so I like to throw it in anytime I can. 
there's just this plethora of music genres. And if you look at the top 40, even the top 10, you would have everything from like a, a Debbie Gibson right next to a Warrant. Yeah. Next to, uh, you know, Grandmaster Flash. I mean, yeah. you have this incredible mix of music. And then, oh, let me just throw in like Kenny Rogers, who happened to be yeah. at the same yeah. time. I think That's, Kenny Rogers was one of the first country crossovers, wasn't he? He was, yeah, yeah, he was actually. Yeah. I remember yeah. my friends going, you got to listen to this album, The Gambler. I'm like, what is it? It's country. Fuck country. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I've been a, I, I think I've always been a Kenny Rogers fan. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, that doesn't we, exist anymore. You know, the top 40, everything, I mean, I hate to sound old, but I mean, legitimately, everything does sound very much the same. And it's about that, that package. Find yeah. that works, make a lot of money from it, and stick to it. And, and then, uh, and then comedy. Yeah, a lot of great comedy that came yeah. out. The Comedy Store, Live at the Improv. Uh, I mean, what a great comedy era that the 80s were. You had uh, all the great comedians. Uh, George Carlin, of course, George Carlin was around oh, yeah. back in the 50s and 60s. But uh, you had... Uh, Eddie Murphy. I saw Eddie Murphy raw live. Yeah, Eddie Murphy. You saw, you saw it live, live? Oh, live. Damn, dude. That, that, uh, that, that, uh, that's the reason I'm still single. It was incredible. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, I always stay away from the Ritz crackers. Uh, the uh, or hold on, it's the saltine crackers. Anyway, whatever you get me. Um, but so many great comedians out of that culture. I mean, for me, just everything was vibrant and lively. When grunge came along, I was like, "What the hell is this depressing shit?" Yeah. Um, I am a Nirvana's fan now. I like Nirvana, but at the time when grunge came out, you were just like, wow, we went from bright colors and rainbows and sunlight to, uh, some really dark shit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was the path we were on. Some people say that. I, I was the chains down in a hole. I mean, we went deep. Yeah. We went, we were really dark. Like we were just went right out the deep end. And I was a Metallica fan. So I was already pretty dark, but I was just like, what the hell is this crap? And, uh, you know, it's, and, and, but it was a collective time. It was a great time. Just, just so many wonderful things politically, so many crazy things going on. I think in the eighties, didn't we have the fall of the Berlin wall in 89? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the mind's starting to go. Crazy. Yeah, it was, it, I'll tell you, it was, it was an incredible decade. And, um, when you talk about the movies, for example, uh, one of the reasons that and people say, well, why, why eighties movies? What, what's, you know, what is it about 80s movies that they, they keep coming back? And so even now, I have friends who have kids that are 20 years old, 22 years old, and some of their favorite movies are from the 80s. And yeah. so you think about why is that? And I think part of it was if you go back to the 80s and you look at the types of movies that were being made, today, if you make a movie and you get halfway through the movie and you realize my movie's not good or the acting, the dialogue, whatever it is, something's not good. I have a big enough budget. I'll just throw a couple million dollars at some CGI. And then everybody will say, you know, special effects. Everybody will say, man, you got to go see this movie in the theater. How many times have you heard that? You got to go see this movie. Yeah. In the 80s, they didn't have that option. So if you wrote a bad movie, if, you, if your movie was bad from a character development perspective, a dialogue perspective, a plot, people weren't going to go. And the, the, the markets that are open today for a bad movie to make money anyway weren't there. So you spent six months at the box office in the U.S. I mean, this is real, four to six months. And then five months later, you're on HBO. And then four months later, you're in the video store. And that was pretty much it. That was all the market there was. And now if your movie doesn't make money in the U.S., you send it overseas and you can make money off of it there. And 
it's hard not to make your money back now. Then they didn't have a choice. They, they, they couldn't throw special effects at it. So Maybe they had to work harder to make really good movies because now some of the stuff they make nowadays, you're just like, you're just like, what the hell? I mean, did you know that was going to go directly to video and you just phoned it in or something? Um, you know, it's just one of those things where you're just like, just like, what, what the hell went on? Like, did you know this was going to VCR? But there's not VCRs anymore. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, there are. You can get them on eBay. But, uh, but, the, but yeah, you can. Um, but the thing is, with these, with these. With these I actually own a VCR. I just realized. I thought, yeah, I actually have a VCR because I actually have tapes. My mom gave me some tapes of my childhood. She had the old eight millimeters reels put on the on the sixty millimeter eight, whatever, put on the video. So one of these days, I guess I gotta go ahead and put on a CD. Or wait, those are gone too. <laughs> yeah, but everything you know. Listen, I have a record player again, so vinyl's coming back. Yeah, uh, I mean the the great thing about the eighties too is like you lived, you lived, you still you caught the album era and the CD era, and like me, you probably went into the CD record store and you would spend like four fucking hours, like just wandering the different albums, looking through them, going, you know, reading the liner notes, trying to figure out if you wanted to plunk down your $12 for that LP. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then, then I would go next door to the arcade and spend a bunch of quarters playing Dragon's Lair or, Galaga or something, you know. I mean, that's that's another thing that, that I yeah, Galaga and, and all the different things. I mean, yeah. in the in the early eighties, we had the arcade uh, shops, and you went there, the pile four quarters, and they had the big arcade machines, and and that was how you played video games. And that's then eventually, Commodore sixty fours and Apple computers came out, and you know, you had little tape memory, the cassette tape memory. You know, I love that. There's a meme I always see on. Uh, on uh, on Facebook and social media, where it shows a cassette and it shows a pencil and says, "If you know what to do with this, you probably grew up in the '80s." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd be like, people, are, "Hey, what are you doing?" I'm rewinding my Van Halen tape, man. I'm trying to get back to the beginning. <laughs> my Walkman batteries are dead, man. I got I just got to rewind this thing. <laughs> you know, the problem was they do the. They they'd make the cassettes and they you know they have the A side and the B side and the B side sometimes would be short especially if it was like Van Halen or Rolling Stones so it'd be like fifty miles of reel you had to do and you didn't want to burn through your battery so you just hand wind it with a pencil or <laughs> those are that was great. those are high tech days these kids have no idea what they're suffrage. <laughs> But all, everything that you're talking about is what made the '80s great and why that built character man that built character. Yeah, yeah, and rewind your own shit. <laughs> you talked about the whole idea of this evolution across you know the entire decade and all the things that there. I think there was just an explosion of stuff. I think is the best way to say it. Yeah, and, um, and that was it was the first time that we had that. You know, we there was this explosion of stuff, and there was something for everyone. I think that's the big yeah. And you had you know hip hop came into fashion, but there was still punk rock. You still had. You still had the Sex Pistols. You still had, you know, Johnny Rotten. You still had this. You still had the edgy punk. You had the hip hop coming in. You had, you know, for, if people wanted to listen to Debbie Gibson and Tiffany, they could listen to Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. You still had heavy metal. How huge they were, man! It was <laughs> you had the Cure. You had the Smiths. You had it all. And um, yeah, yeah, Debbie, Debbie Gibson. No, wait, it was Tiffany that said, "I think we're alone now." I think that was they awesome. were both like just 
freaking too huge for their time. They really, I, I think they really set the stage for the Mariah Carey Paola. Um, I think that's when the decade really started dying. I remember I was a huge, uh, and you, you can correct me because you maybe studied the 80s more than I did, but for me, where the 80s really started to die was when the Paola started to die, when the A&R men started showing up in, in uh, bands, uh, studios going, no, we need more synthesizers and we got to, we got to control this and we got to start getting, uh, we got to start, you know, getting the dailies on what you guys are doing so we can listen to them and then shape the music. You know, there's more of a corporate shaping. Um, I remember I was a huge Kansas fan and I was really excited to get their new album and it was going to be freaking huge. And the uh, CEO and president of MCI decided he wanted to bang Mariah Carey. And so he got in with her and then he shit canned every album that was coming out on the mci label just just didn't market it just threw it in the drink really when it came down to it they issued the albums and said huh, have fun with that um and they put all their pale and money into mariah carey and to me and then pale was you know really started taking off large talks about it from metallic and other people and i think that's what really started killing the 80s it went from that bright that bright, you know, spontaneous creative thing like you're talking about to where everyone's like, how do we make some money off of this? You know, the whole corporate thing. Yeah. My take on it, I don't know. No, it's, it's, it's a good take. I mean, and, I, and again, I think that's why it's it just, things keep coming back there to the 80s because of the, the there was this, this individual freedom, this creativity that we just, I don't think, I'm not sure that we're ever gonna see it again. And yeah. the reason that when you think about the great characters of in movie history so many of them come from the 80s and yeah. and they've stuck with us and so that's you know i mean there's just not a decade like it in my opinion video games of course uh you know really started hitting their stride the playstation 3 i think uh came out in the 80s didn't it? The 80s, uh, i don't know, i think it was we had definitely had PlayStation. yeah i was trying to come out you had nintendo you had atari uh yeah. game was starting to come out but uh I think I think that's the reason um, things went so dark with grunge and everything. Uh, I think I think the money and the uh, the corporate powers that wanted to be, you know, like one of my favorite bands, Rush, talks about this. You know, like in 1986, I think it was, the A and R guys started showing up in the studio, going, "Hey, I'm the rep from the from the label, and uh, we're gonna help you guys sell albums here by." manufacturing this music a little bit better than what you guys are doing they're like hey we're just artists we want to make beautiful music and they're like no we can're gonna meddle with it a bit and uh you need more synthesizers you need more you know whatever and and uh and i think that's i think that's where the beauty of the 80s started to really come down that's why we got the 90s um that and a bunch of millennials got born so <laughs> <laughs> I kid my millennial folks, you bastards. Um, the uh, and then we had Gen Y and Gen X, and and now we know abortion is legal. I'm just kidding, seriously. Anyway, uh, so what else can we learn from your book? Yeah, so um, I, I think I think what I, I really I kind of want a lot of times people ask me the question, how did you come up with this idea of tying '80s movies to the workplace? Like what would prompt this? And so uh, I think it's a good lesson because like a lot of people, I was in a, a job that just really wasn't working for me. And um, I kind of came home one day and I was guess having a self-pity party of one, I guess you would say. Uh, nobody else. Fridays around here. 
with What's a bottle that? of vodka. We call yeah. that Fridays around here with a bottle of vodka. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a self pity party of one. No one else is gonna feel sorry for you. And, uh, I was home on a Saturday afternoon and I was watching The Breakfast Club, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, great movie. Uh, I got the Don't You Forget About Me up there yeah. on the back, and also the uh, you know if he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy, which is one of my favorite quotes. And yeah. so I was watching uh, I was watching The Breakfast Club, and at one point when uh, Principal Vernon comes in and the door is shut because Bender's taking the screws out of the door so he can't see into the library. And he says, you know, who, who, who took the screws out of the door? And Bender says, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great movie. And it was, it was, I kind of like sat up on my couch and I, it would just resonated though. That line screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. Just, it hit me in a weird way. And I realized like that your job, your career, your business can be an imperfect place. And from there, I just thought maybe I can take two things that I know well, which is business and 80s, and figure out a way to put them together. And I wrote an article on LinkedIn called What the Breakfast Club Taught Us About the Workplace. Oh, wow. And it just got this, I was shocked at the reaction that I got from it. People were responding you know, from everywhere saying, hey, this is really cool. This is a great idea. So I wrote another one, Ferris Bueller and Work-Life Balance. And I, then I started thinking, maybe I have something here. And I started to look back at the movies and I realized if you just look at them in a different light, if you just, if you, if you break them down a little bit, you can find these really cool lessons in them. And, um, and it's usually what the characters said. So ET, for example, you know, at the end of ET, and by the way, I will tell you that I typically, I don't typically shed a tear at movies, but I did at two. You got one, ET, yeah. One was E.T. when he was on the side on the riverbed and he was just oh, white and looked like he was going to die. And the other one was when Wilson floated away and cast away, when the volleyball floated away and oh, Tom, yeah. Wilson, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know why, but I cried for a volleyball and an alien, but never everywhere else. Did Dad leave you as a kid or something? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I. I'm a fine person. I'm just wondering, just trying to figure out the whole volleyball thing. Yeah, it was weird. I don't know. I was I was actually at the movie theater with my buddy. Dated a girl named Volleyball one day, and she just up and left you or something. She might have. I might have like put that in the. I might have put that away somewhere. Yeah, you might want to you know, see if you can buy that. If you if you start finding your buy, you want to buy guns, you know, just talk, see a shrink talk to somebody. My buddy was next to me, and he said, "You know, is it is it weird that I'm crying for a volleyball?" And I said, "No, man. Everybody in the theater is." So I, you uh, know, I, I I wish I'd gotten into that movie more. For some reason I didn't get into that movie. I don't know why. And Tom Hanks is an incredible actor. I love Tom Hanks. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I was just busy. I remember watching it pieces because I. I just, uh, I don't know, maybe I was just really disconnected. Maybe I just didn't drink enough. I used to like to really drink and watch movies because then I get them more emotionally, you know, captured to them. It's a personal issue. Well, give it a shot. See what happens. Don't worry. I'm seeing it. My guys are so Go watch ET. But no, what you bring up about The Breakfast Club yeah. is The Breakfast Club resonated with everybody in the 80s. That's why it was so huge and popular um, because it was what you're talking about. It was it was so many different people. It was the it was the loser. It was the reject. It was the the weird chick uh, who was kind of uh, uh, wasn't one of them. Kind of uh, what, what's that cure look that I'm thinking of with the dark, you know? Everything. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had the jock. Who, I think it was Emilio Estevez. Yeah. 
Um, you just had this whole crew of people. And I think that's the other reason that Saint Almost Fire was a big hit too, because you had you had these people from all these different walks of life, all these different characters and different um, angles on life, and they they were still friends because they were joined at the hip from the high school sort of experience. Um, and uh, a lot of great movies from that era and stuff. Just yeah, the Breakfast Club. I'm glad you brought that up because um, the Breakfast Club. You're right. There was the geek, the princess, the jock, the athlete, and the basket case. And so you had these five characters, and uh, every high school has them. That's that's the thing that that's yeah. why it still resonates today. Every single high school has those five characters in it, and they will long after we're gone. And so that's why that that movie I think resonates so much with people is because. We see ourselves in one of those characters, or we see ourselves in all of those characters, and so um, it really does. It really does resonate, and it will continue um, to resonate for years. And in fact, uh, I was watching a documentary about finding John Hughes that a uh, a couple kids from from Canada. They uh, in 2009, before he passed away, they were on a mission to find John Hughes because they wanted him to understand how much his movies had an impact on them. And they were in their late 20s at the time, so they weren't even old enough in the 80s to appreciate the movies. They had to watch them afterwards. But they were so taken by his, his the movies, particularly The Breakfast Club, that they wanted to let him know. And they filmed this documentary when they went on a mission to go find him. And in the process, they interviewed high school kids. And they asked them, "What's your you know? do you know who John Hughes is? And they were like, oh, yeah. Have you ever seen The Breakfast Club? And they're like, my favorite movie ever, Ferris Bueller, love it. And these kids were 15, <laughs> years old. But it's it just it's it's got it just resonates. He knew how to talk to teenagers. He knew what it was like to go through that. And I, I wish I had the I wish I had the power or the money to be able to get the Breakfast Club on Broadway because I think it is it's it's perfect. I'm really surprised someone has done it, dude. You you got a billion dollar thing there. Fuck I mean, yeah, man. Nobody's done it. It's it's shocking to me. It's like a perfect. Hey, you should do it. You got to You got to go get uh, you know, uh, and Frank. Andrew Lloyd, whoever that guy is that writes all those uh, Broadway musicals, you got to go have him punch one out. And, one room. And it's I think Luther feels the big playwright. What's that? I, everyone loved that movie. I mean, you probably you probably recently saw, uh, I call her AOC. I'm forgetting her name now. It's I had to Google it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, wasn't it cool how she did the Breakfast Club dance? Yeah. <laughs> all the Republicans freaked out like, oh my God, whatever that in the Congress. So you're just like, no, that's really epic. <laughs> but she's 29, and so again, 29 years old, not even old enough, not not even old enough to be, you know, I don't even know. Let's see, 29 years old, so 10, 20. So she wasn't even born in the 80s, but she's doing that dance, and I guess that's the whole thing that that's again, we go back to this idea of the 80s, and what is it about this decade that people are still still looking at it and saying. If I wasn't there, I would have been interested to be part of it. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take some of those things from the movies and I'm gonna use them. And it's pretty cool. I mean, it's like it's it's a uh, you know going back to ET. Uh, ET taught us a, a really valuable lesson before it was even popular, and that was about social responsibility. And so you think about ET and you go back to that movie, and at the very end, ET says to uh, Gertie and um, Elliot, the last thing he says is "Be good," right? Be good. These are two words that he said before he went back home, be good. And that was all about being good to each other, being good to the planet, being good to the environment. That's what I took out of it. And you look at these companies today and part of the, the, in the book, I talk about how some there's companies like Warby Parker and UB 
and um, uh, Tom's who built their business model on social responsibility, on giving back. And they're making a profit and they're giving back. They're doing the two things that you would want your business to do. And uh, it's pretty remarkable. So we've come all this way now where people can actually take a day off from work to volunteer and the companies encourage it instead of saying, take a sick day or take your vacation day. They're encouraging their employees to volunteer and get involved. Definitely. I mean, the, I, I, I think we moved away, you know, we, we moved away from the corporate man, the, the IBM man, if you remember that in the 60s. Uh, you know, you, you weren't, you weren't going to show up at IBM with a gray suit on or a gray hat. Everyone wore hats or gray shoes. You showed up in black, top to bottom, corporate uniform. You don't write outside the lines. You don't think outside the box. You follow the thing. And then we, you know, we went through the crazy 70s where everything was up and up was down. And there was the real sort of culture clash sort of thing. And then, of course, we went to the 80s where, like you say, it became much more like, hey, it's okay to be an individual and being an individual is kind of cool. And we'll see yeah. what you're it's it's good to have 31 flavors at the ice cream shop instead of just vanilla. So yeah. uh, I remember my brother used to love vanilla ice cream and God bless him because vanilla is good, especially if you get that white bean or bean vanilla. That's oh, really good. I can't do it. I, I like it every now and then, but it's got to be really expensive, really good ice cream. You know what I mean? It can't just be that cheap crap. Uh, but uh, he loved vanilla, and I used to argue with him. I'm like, you, you, you got to, you know, have something that tastes like something. Vanilla tastes like vanilla. <laughs> but, uh, you know, hey, everyone did the different flavors. They're, they're wow. different uh, things they like and everything else. And uh, what a beautiful time. But, yeah, it was, it was fun to see AOC do that. Uh, and, and to me, that's, uh, for the last little while, that's what I was espousing to what I want in Congress. I'd love to have some more personalities, some different people, some different aspects, instead of a bunch of male suits and middle-aged guys. I'd love to have some flavor, some color, some different people, some different perspectives, so that we become, you know, more representative of, of what America is. And that's, that's kind of what most of us saw in, uh, in uh, The Breakfast Club. I mean, you know, back then you had your clicks because you were in high school and you're like, yeah, I hate the, the new wave people, fuck those people. And, you know, and, and Breakfast Club and some of the other movies that came out in that time, they showed that, hey, we can all, we can all, you know, hang out together. Like I, I wasn't a big fan of uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. What's her face? Uh, her name is Casey right now. I wasn't a big fan because it was kind of new wave-ish and tinkery, you know, synthesizers, but you kind of had to do, yeah. I kind of liked the song. It had a great catch to it, you know. Girls just wanna. Oh, Cindy Lauper. Yeah, Cindy Lauper, and it's a fun song, and it it, it, it kind of responsible. It's like it's all some fun. It's all just uh, lighten up a little bit here and and have some fun. And so, what a great time! Anything else you want to share with us about the book? Yeah, so um, you know, there's some serious lessons in there, but then there's some fun ones as well. Uh, you know, this guy that I have on my shirt right here, if you can kind of see, that's, you know, Spicoli, right? So, I mean, one of the greatest characters of all time. I mean, hands down, I don't care what anybody says, in every decade in the history of movies, it is one of the greatest characters of all time. You know what's funny is I just saw him yesterday on, I don't know what I was doing, I was searching through some site on music or something, and I saw the picture of Spicoli in the, the video cover they have for him. And I was like, I think what it was is I was on Netflix. And I was like, yeah, let's find some stuff to watch. And that came up, and I was like, man, if I ever meet him, I'm going to give him shit and call him Spicoli. Does he care? 
He's, he's, he's such a serious guy. I'll probably get punched in the face. He's a very serious guy. It's funny that he that this was the character that really made him. <laughs> the character that propelled him. And so I talked about like the serious lessons in the book for business. You know, this the ideas of uh, you know, Del, Del Griffith from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles teaching us about how every company needs a great salesperson, you know, a very important lesson. But Spicoli taught us something as well, which is a kind of a fun one. And that is that, you know, make sure that when you order lunch in the office to order enough for everybody. Because if you don't, you know, it's he gets the pizza and, and he says, you know, there's nothing like a little, nothing wrong with a little feast on our time. And of course, Mr. Han says, you know, you're right, Mr. Spicoli, and gets everybody to come up to have, you know, a piece of pizza. And so there's some funny lessons in there as well about, you know, just having some fun with some of these movies and, and the things that they may have taught us as well. So yeah it's it's quite the journey looking back to me the, some of the music was some of the best in the 80s some of the things in the movies of course and they're still retreading the movies from the 80s now in hollywood i mean it's just it's just a never-ending cycle yeah. of, of all the great movies i mean i mean uh uh i mean it's amazing to me how many star wars they keep coming up with i'm just like seriously another star wars movie um, as long as I don't see the Death Star in them, I'm kind of okay with another Star Wars movie because I'm I'm tired of seeing the Star Wars the Death Star. It's to my Star Wars fans, I'm sorry, man. Just we need a new plot. That's all I'm saying. Um, but you know, then again, you go back to you go back to a lot of the movies that were made uh, in the '80s that came out of um, what's his face from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s Japan, uh, Akira Kawasawa. And how that affected them and everything else. So uh, maybe you should do a book on how the previous culture affected the '80s. Or I don't know if you talked about that in your book, but what kind of got us the '80s? I don't know. That might. Be uh, no, I haven't, but that would be an interesting one for sure. Um, I think the the when you talked about the, um, uh, the 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 idea of like this this kind of um, explosion of things that were that were happening in the '80s. And why these, you know, you, you mentioned Star Wars, for example, right? And so they're remaking all of these movies now. And I, I really don't like it. Like, I would rather they just re-release the original. First of all, it would cost less money to re-release the original. So I never understood why they don't do that. And then, you know, I'm really, I'm at the point where I'm like, please do not make, remake any more Patrick Swayze movies. Just let him, let his movies speak for him because he did yeah. some phenomenal movies in the 80s. And they keep remaking them, and the remakes are terrible. They're like, always terrible. They're these. There's stuff you don't touch. You yeah. don't. You don't freaking cover Stairway to Heaven. You just don't. Yeah. You just leave it alone. There's there's things there should be law like whiter shade of pale. You can get away with that because everyone's done it, and you know you just got to do it because everybody else the fuck has. It's kind of like uh, Pamela Anderson. Um, but, uh, don't remake Roadhouse. No, I love Pamela Anderson. She was my she was my eighties, uh, probably early love. Uh, Roadhouse, yeah, you can't don't don't make Roadhouse. And what's funny, they're doing it. They're doing I, it. Ronda Rousey. I think I remember hearing that. And and the problem was the the funny thing is who who's the cowboy in that Elliot Elliot? Uh, uh, he's the cowboy. Sam Elliot. Sam Elliott. What's funny about Sam Elliott is he's the same goddamn age in that movie that he is today. Oh, yeah. He looks like the same grizzled old motherfucker that he is. Today. Yeah. He hasn't aged a year, and he was old then. Like, but uh, I remember I was real upset when he got stabbed and died. That was real. That I think <laughs> I cried at that moment because he's a badass. He was my John Wayne dude. Yeah, um, he was my John Wayne. He always has been. Uh, in some of the great movies he's always been in. 
uh, you know, he, he was never going to get caught on uh, on a movie like Brokeback Mountain. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's a real Marlboro old man's man. In fact, I was surprised he wasn't like the Marlboro old man all the time. But uh, what was the other great movie that he was in uh, with the uh, two brothers, the Ethan brothers, uh, that they did where he, it was that classic movie with the Bridges and uh, uh, the, they were bowling and, and stuff, and, and he was in the movie, and, and uh, I forget what it is. Some, somebody will fill it in, I'm sure. So let's wrap the show up, Chris. Anything yeah. more you want to plug? Anything more you want to tell us about the book and what you got going on? Yeah, sure. So I think the important thing with the, the stuff that I've been working on with the 80s and the workplace is, um, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking at events and conferences. And I talk about the, this, this idea of 80s movies and what they teach us about the workplace. And I think the important thing is that you, when you work in a business, you know, you, you're, you have people come in consistently teaching you about different things with corporate training. You go to a conference or an event and you hear a lot of the same things from, you know, business about leadership and management. And uh, not, some of it's very good. Um, some of it is difficult to retain. And I think what I do with my, with my content, what I think is good is when you teach about inclusion and you use chunk and sloth to teach someone about inclusion, you, the hope is that they retain it and they take it back to the workplace. Instead of you know, uh, talking about inclusion and hearing uh, you know, the same kind of ideas and the same situations, to be able to say, I'm going to teach you about inclusion and I'm going to use chunk and sloth to do it. I'm going to teach you how there really are no stupid questions in the workplace, and I'm going to take the kids from Stand By Me, and I'm going to show you and teach you how they taught us that really there are no stupid questions, and that the simplest questions sometimes actually create the biggest brainstorms in the office. When uh, the kids from Stand By Me said, we're sitting around a campfire and, and uh, you know, had the conversation about if Mickey's a mouse and Donald's a duck and Pluto's a dog, what's Goofy? And, of course, you know, well, Goofy's a dog. And he says, yeah, but he drives a, hat, he drives a car and wears a hat. <laughs> yeah, and of course he says, well, yeah, what the hell is Goofy? And that idea that it started this brainstorm from this, what should have been like kind of a stupid question actually created this big conversation about what Goofy was. And so I think that's what I, I really enjoy about the book. And what I hear from people is the lessons that are in there for, for the workplace and for business and even for life are, you can retain them because you're thinking about these characters and then you're applying those characters to the lesson. And uh, and I think that's pretty. I, th I think it's pretty unique, and it's and it's and it's a lot of fun for me. I'll tell you that. So. It's pretty interesting how the 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 circular nature of uh, movies reflect movies and music reflect life and culture, and then we get our culture back from it, and uh, it, it feeds itself uh, yeah. as it would. And the uh, second, book, I'm writing the second book, and the first three chapters, just to give you an idea. Actually, the first four. So the first three chapters in the second book, I have uh, Caddyshack. The Princess Bride and the Outsiders. Oh yeah, those three. And Did you cover the Sandlot? That was a you know, pretty epic book. But it's epic. I love it. I mean, I I uh, I love the movie, but it's the '90s. I may have to figure out a way to sneak it into one of my books because I love the movie. My book for the '90s would be uh, how how you guys missed all the greatest music and videos ever from the '80s, and you bastardized humanity. <laughs> That would be, I don't know. I'm just kidding, my millennials. Um, <clears throat> no, it's just, it went really dark with grunge. I remember I remember seeing uh, grunge come out, and I was like, what the fuck is going on in Seattle, uh, heroin? Um, that, was the, that was the end of Warrant and Winger and all those guys. That was yeah, like all the, I remember this, uh, one of my models from my model agency came up, and she saw my 4,000 
CD collection. She goes, you're a butt rocker. I was like, what's a butt rocker? That sounds gay. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, she she goes, "Uh, that's all that long hair. And I'm like, get out of my get out of my studio um and uh, but she still was hot so i still took her out but after she was not allowed in the cd room ever again um but uh you know no it's it's great music uh you know what's funny is my um talent agency we had an acting and modeling talent agency years ago and emilio estevez's uh uncle joe estevez was uh with our agency he was with a lot of agencies uh and he used to call me and he sounds just like Martin Sheen. In fact, he did the voiceover for a lot of Martin Sheen stuff. Uh, and and so it was funny to learn the whole story of the Estevez family, which is their real name, not Sheen. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so I kind of got to know a little bit about the family from that angle. So yeah, it was kind of cool because when you watch Breakfast Club, you're like, God, Amelia's is a fucking dick. But you know, most jocks were back then. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that because I wasn't one. I was the nerd. I was the weak nerd. I was like, I have to run a third lap? This is, uh, I was like this thin little thing. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so give us the plugs in the book where we can get it and anything you're doing with it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so appreciate the time. Um, the first book, uh, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace, and it's mixtape number one, is available on Amazon in uh, paperback in uh, Kindle ebook. Um, Half about halfway through the second book right now, and that'll have uh, more distribution. I'm actually we'll have a publisher for that one, so I won't be self-publishing anymore, which is going to be great for me. Although I do like the name of my publishing company, which is Farmer Ted Publishing, and if you know that one from Sixteen Candles, so uh, that's that's the name of my little publishing company that I created, Farmer Ted Publishing. Uh, and um, yeah, so you can find me at chrisclues.com. I'm mm-hmm. available to speak at events and conferences um, at any time. I have quite a, a few of them coming up in the next few months as well. So uh, my content fits any theme, any industry, and I love getting on stage and talking about this stuff. Uh, 80s at 80s Pop Culture on Twitter, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn are Chris Clues. And if I could mention one more thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show. So um, unfortunately, as life would have it, um, a few days ago, uh, we lost, I lost a friend of mine uh, from college. He has a uh, 14-year-old daughter. He died in a car accident. It's just like that. You know, he's gone. And so, uh, you know, people set up GoFundMes and different things to help. Uh, they, if you went to his Facebook page, you would see that, that she was his heart and soul. Um, so what I've done is I've taken, taken my book here, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches About Today's Workplace, and uh, all the royalties through March 3rd are, gonna go, are going to his daughter. So um, if you're thinking about purchasing the book or the ebook, if you're interested in the content and you think it's cool, or if you just want to support a 14-year-old girl who just lost her, her father, um, that's the way to do it. So I uh, started on February 19th, and we're doing pretty well. And we'll continue through March 3rd. All 100% of the royalties from ebook and paperback are going to go to uh, his daughter. So there you well, have it. Blood. 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 So uh, anyway, we appreciate you guys coming by the show today. Uh, be sure to check out uh, Chris's book on Amazon.com or any of the different uh, Amazon book or booksellers out there in the marketplace. Uh, we certainly appreciate you guys being here. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us on YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button. Also go to twitch.tv forward slash Chris Voss. You can see the different gaming, gaming interviews we're doing there with game developers as well. You can, of course, follow Chris Voss 
thechrisvossshow.com. You can go to chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. I've got too many .coms. And you can go to, of course, see the show also on bookauthorpodcast.com. So, uh, you know, you can go check it all out from there and be sure for the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives, dogs, cats, all that sort of good stuff. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you next time.